Welcome back to the New York Times' Dealbook DC Policy Project. Um, policy project. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here uh, right now with the New York Attorney General, Patricia James, uh, to have a conversation about policy and about law and about where we are uh, in this country and where we are going forward. Um, I should tell you, we're thrilled to have her here in large part because she is a trailblazer. Uh, she became the first woman in New York to be elected Attorney General. Uh, she's the first black woman to be elected statewide to statewide office and the first black person to serve as Attorney General in this state. Um, and she has uh, been very, very busy uh, in so many ways. Uh, you have probably read the headlines. Uh, you know this. Uh, she sued uh, Amazon uh, recently. She's involved in a case uh, against the Trumps, as you know, uh, the NRA, uh, the NYPD, uh, Facebook. The list goes on and on. Uh, and um, we're going to explore how she's thinking about all of this this afternoon. Uh, please join me in welcoming her to this conversation. Thank you Thank for you, being here. Thank you, Andrew. And hello to uh, your followers. Um, and I should mention to all of the, to, to everybody who's watching, if you do have questions, you can follow along uh, with us. You can you can ask those questions in the comments and also uh, on Twitter, uh, hashtag DealBookDC. Um, there's so much to talk about, and I do want to get your sense of how you're thinking about the world and, and how you're thinking about the law and how you think about your role. Uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the news uh, that just literally came across uh, this morning, hours ago. As you know, the Supreme Court. Uh, rejected the bid by President Trump uh, that would have shielded his tax returns from Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance. And uh, just wanted to get your reaction when you heard that news. So as you know, we are engaging in a separate investigation from um, District Attorney Cy Vance. Our investigation is civil in nature. His is criminal. Uh, we are reviewing tax information from the Trump Organization, and uh, we are still conducting our investigation. Um, and so until such time as we complete the investigation, uh, uh, you know, it's, it continues to be ongoing. Does this, though, change the dynamic in any way? It doesn't change um, the tenor of our lawsuit. Um, as you know, um, in our investigation, what we are looking at is the fact that the Trump Organization, based on the testimony of Michael Cohen, who was uh, the attorney for um, the Trump Organization and for Donald Trump individually, they inflated their taxes uh, for the purposes of uh, gaining um, benefits uh, from insurance companies as well as from mortgage companies, and then deflated their very same assets for the purposes of evading tax liability um, in New York State. So we are um, investigating that matter. That um, investigation uh, was initiated again in the aftermath of the testimony of Michael Cohen before Congress. Um, we did it while he while Donald Trump was the president of the United States, um, and it continues. And um, the fact that he is now a private citizen is really of no moment. We will continue our investigation, and upon completion, we will announce. Um, but but uh, does this decision in any way um, help you insofar as does it make an argument for you to have get access to those tax records in ways that you might not have before? So right now, again, though, that in that case that was for the United States Supreme Court is right. a matter, again, involving the district attorney of uh, New York County. It does not involve the office of the New York State Attorney General. We have obtained information on our own. There is this, uh, a wall of separation between the two offices. Again, one is criminal, one is civil. Um, and at this point in time, uh, uh, until we uncover some unlawful behavior or uh, conduct, 
our investigation will continue as a civil matter. Right. Uh, one of the things that you did, though, uh, that was fascinating to me, which is you, you pushed a bill through that gave a carve-out, an exception, to the double jeopardy protection uh, in the event of a presidential pardon uh, in the state of New York. Um, you had a theory, I think, uh, before the end of this year that uh, the president was going to effectively step down and have Vice President Pence pardon him. That didn't happen. Um, what, what, what was your theory behind that, that bill? So the bill was not specifically aimed at Donald Trump and or his family and or um, any of his associates. associates. Um, we needed to close a pardon loophole in the law. That's exactly what we did. It, it applies to um, uh, the president of the United States, um, the former president of the United States, and any president thereafter. But it was important that we correct the law in the state of New York um, and the mess so that the message is clear that no one is above the law. And that if, in fact, you are pardoned for federal offenses, um, that you will not, uh, that will not apply to offenses committed in the great state of New York. Were you surprised he didn't step down and have Vice President Pence pardon him? Um, I'm, I'm never surprised by the conduct of the former President of the United States. Um, and there has been some rumblings as to the possibility um, of some secret pardons. I do not know. I know that the law, again, had to be corrected. We had to fix the pardon loophole. We did just that. We did that. I want to thank the state legislature for working with my office and for the governor of the state of New York for signing it into law. Uh, you did mention the idea of a secret pardon. Do you think he secretly pardoned himself? I really don't know. Um, we will see. Uh, again, uh, there is a in, in the event that there is any action taken by District Attorney Vance or the uh, District Attorney in Fulton County in Georgia, um, or if uh, again our investigation, if it uh, if uh, it changes, um, if uh, we go from civil to criminal, uh, there will be a determination at that point in time um, as to whether or not. There, in fact, is a secret pardon, but there's been a lot of speculation, but it's nothing more than that pure speculation. Okay. Um, let me ask you about one other one other item in the news, and then I want to talk a little bit more broadly about the way you're thinking right now. But last month, um, you brought an inquiry into nursing home deaths in this state, in the state of New York, and you exposed how the state had drastically under-reported the numbers. Um, and this has you know, opened a lot of questions about the leadership of the governor, Governor Andrew Cuomo, he, as you know, endorsed you for the role of AG. Um, what does that inquiry look like now, and what's your relationship like with him as a result of all this? So the report speaks for itself, um, and the report speaks to a number of recommendations, and I know that the legislature, in fact, is proposing reforms in that area. Um, but what we concluded was, in fact, that the number of deaths um, were underreported. It was based on different categories. Um, in addition to that, uh, we believe that um, nursing homes need to make engage in some reforms to protect vulner the vulnerable populations, um, that there was inadequate PPE in place, that a significant number of nursing homes all throughout the state of New York it had, had inadequate staffing, and nursing homes with a low rating, unfortunately, um, there was a significant number of deaths in those homes. Um, and so it's important that we protect vulnerable populations. It's important that we, um, again, uh, provide trust and provide accurate numbers uh, to uh, New Yorkers in the state of New York. And I urge everyone to read my report and come to their own conclusion. 
Have you spoken to the governor about it? Um, I've spoken to the governor. And, and what did he say? Those conversations with the governor are private. Um, fair enough. We will. Uh, I, I, I can try, but uh, I, and I appreciate I appreciate you taking the question to begin with. Um, but let's talk uh, more broadly, if we could, about the role that you're in and, and the role of the state uh, versus uh, the role of the federal government. And I was thinking about this because there's been a number of issues that you've taken on where there's a federal rule uh, in one place or, or, or federal oversight in one place, but then there's also the issue of uh, the state and, and who effectively should have that oversight. And one of the interesting cases that's been brought literally in the past couple of weeks is this uh, case with Amazon over workplace safety. Uh, Amazon preemptively sued you, as you very well know, um, arguing that the federal government uh, oversees or should be overseeing workplace safety. Uh, you sued Amazon, uh, making the argument that because this happened in New York State, that you should oversee uh, and be able to prosecute based on this. How do you think about those two issues right now? So first, let me um, talk about Amazon. Amazon is wrong, um, and they engaged in a preemptive strike because they became aware of our investigation, which began in March of uh, 20, uh, 2020. Um, and as a result of unsafe conditions, um, as a result of a workplace which put workers' um, lives and safety um, in harm's way, um, as a result of their failure to address conditions that were brought to their attention in the midst of the pandemic. Um, and then uh, when uh, workers took um, action, uh, when they brought this, uh, these uh, complaints to the attention of managers, there were two individuals in particular um, who were fired. They were terminated. And um, we believe uh, that that was in violation of the law, these uh, retaliatory actions and two we believe that workplaces um, should be safe uh, from this pandemic um, and that Amazon should take into consideration the health um, and safety of its employees and they did not and so what they decided to do was engage in a preemptive strike um, and we in turn filed our action now getting back to your original question the last two years that I've been Attorney General um, and given the former um, President of the United States, I found I found myself defending states' rights. Believe it or not, a woman of color defending states' rights. But um, what individuals understand and 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 um, their knowledge of states' rights is sort of different from what we can recall during the civil rights um, period. Um, I was defending the right of New York State against a, an administration, uh, which in uh, basically. Uh, basically was enacting regressive policies which hurt New Yorkers. They include issues um, such as uh, denying uh, New Yorkers the right to participate in the Trusted Traveler Program, um, attempts um, to uh, deny uh, undocumented immigrants in a rich immigrant state such as New York um, from participating in the census when the Constitution of the United States um, speaks to the fact that everyone should be counted regardless of their immigration status. Um, the Postal Service, uh, during a time when we were in the midst of an election, um, this administration, the former administration, wanted to basically change um, the operations of the postal system. It includes but um, 
is not limited to ICE, uh, basically um, engaging in uh, uh, actions in courthouses uh, where they were basically arresting um, immigrants uh, for basically nonviolent offenses. And so this had an impact on the administration of justice in our courthouses. It includes, uh, but is not limited to reproductive rights where individuals basically wanted to deny women um, access to reproductive services. Um, it includes our environment. Uh, again, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink and, um, and clean energy, all of these things and more. I had to leave. I had to leave. I had to protect, again, the residents of the state of New York. And I joined with other like-minded attorney generals around this country, protecting states' rights of not only New York, but other similarly situated states. And I would say um, Democratic attorney generals defended our democracy. We were the backbone of this country. And we won over 85% of our cases. And I'm proud of that scorecard. Let me ask you a separate question. It relates directly to Amazon. I had interviewed Chris Smalls, who was one of the employees who was fired, and then uh, later it appeared through emails and other things that the company uh, really uh, tried to publicly discredit him. I'm curious more broadly how you think about the relationship in this state in particular between employers and labor right now. So, you know, um, I believe in the right to organize. I support um, labor um, I recognize the reason why we've got a strong middle class is because of the labor movement. I recognize all that they have done in this country. I um, recognize uh, their right to organize and will protect their right to organize. Um, that being said, the case against Amazon has more to do with the fact that they failed to provide a safe working environment for their employees in the midst of a pandemic. And when complaints were brought to them, um, unfortunately, they engaged in, um, a, in retaliation against Chris Smalls and other employees, right. and that is unconscionable. When you bring a case, how do you think about the balance between justice on one side, and sometimes these are not, um, these can be in conflict, justice on one side and social good in some ways on another. And, and the reason I mention this is you'll see some critics of the case that you brought against Amazon say, well, you're going to run Amazon out of town. And if you were to run them out of town, that's going to be bad for New York. It's not, it's not my objective to run Amazon out of town. Um, it's my objective to protect uh, the safety and the health of its employees. That really is my objective. And right now, this day, um, Amazon could approach my office. We can engage in a consent decree. Uh, where they rehire these employees and they put forth efforts to protect the health and the safety of their employees, and we will call it a day. Um, okay, another philosophical question for you. That I'll, I've talked to a lot of prosecutors over the years about this, which is you have an enormous power both to bring a case and, frankly, not to not bring a case in certain instances. How do you think about it? And the reason I ask is I know some prosecutors who say, look, I only want to bring a case, not only if it's meritorious, but if I believe that I can win, and everybody's got a different threshold. Some people say it's 80%, 90%. only want to bring it if, if I'm going to win. There are other people who say I'm going to bring it whether I win or lose, as long as I think it's meritorious. How do you think about that? Because there are people who say that this can be a deterrent on one side. Other people think if you lose, that's almost an anti-deterrent. Take us through your thinking about this. So when, 
in terms of winning and losing, usually that comes down to um, criminal prosecutors. And, I, and for the most part, the Office of Attorney General is civil in nature. We have a limited criminal jurisdiction. I am guided by one simple concept, and that's the concept of justice. Um, that's my North Star. Um, and standing up for the rights of individuals, particularly when a big business or powerful interests trample on those rights. In addition to that, um, I tend to test um, the law. Um, and I tend to bring novel cases um, and novel theories because it's really critically important um, that over the years, um, our constitution, as you know, is a living document and it, is, it has been bended. Um, and so I continue uh, to press the law, uh, particularly in given the changing environment that we find ourselves in. Um, for instance, in the area of antitrust, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, when people think of antitrust, they think of Ma Bell, um, they think of Microsoft. We're in an entirely different economy, a tech economy. And so it's uh, primarily important that we focus on protecting privacy interests, protecting our data, and ensuring um, uh, that big tech companies do not operate as a monopoly and that they do not engage in these predatory practices. So let's talk about antitrust because it's an issue near and dear to my heart. I think I think you know this, but my my father was a, uh, a former antitrust litigator, so I grew up around the dinner table talking about how to define markets and the like. So um, you're sympathetic to our litigation. I'm I'm objective about the litigation. <laughs> let, let me ask you though uh, this because one of the things I've always thought about is the balance between trying to get the competitive piece right and also the innovation piece right. And how you think again as a state in one in, in one instance versus you know obviously the Department of Justice has its own antitrust division and is thinking a lot about uh, these issues, but especially when it comes to technology, how you think about it, because I look at a Facebook and clearly uh, they have a huge, huge, arguably monopoly power in certain cases. But at the same time, I look and I say to myself, if you and I had said the phrase TikTok two years ago, we would have looked at our watches. And, and, and what does that say about how you can regulate or through policy uh, or through bringing cases like this um, competition effectively? But it, it goes back to your um, prior question. And that is, you know, the federal government under the previous administration was absent in a lot of areas and particularly in the area of antitrust. And so when you talk about TikTok, um, TikTok needs to thrive. And what has happened is, is that Facebook has engaged in these predatory acquisitions. They have not been successful as it relates to TikTok, but, um, and perhaps it's because they don't consider TikTok a rival, or perhaps, perhaps it's because their attempts to acquire TikTok have failed. The point is, is that um, these big tech companies stifle competition, innovation, creativity. They're a threat to our to our privacy by, again, uh, 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 monetizing our data, all of these things and more. And, and that is why it is really critically important um, that I and other attorney generals um, in this nation decided to take action against big tech. Antitrust, it's been a long time since we've seen any antitrust action come out of attorney general's offices, uh, but that is changing. And, um, and I think, uh, again, um, consumers are happy, and, and a number of consumers think, well, you know, they say to me, Tish, what's the harm? It's free. Well, it's not free. Um, 
by monetizing your data, it's not free. Um, uh, by the all the time that you've spent looking at Facebook and Google, it's not free. Um, and so it comes at a cost. And small businesses are being hurt. The fact that you are only seeing certain advertising um, comes at a cost. And so for all of these reasons, um, one, my office decided to lead the litigation on Facebook. Colorado was leading. Uh, Phil Weiser, Attorney General Phil right. Weiser, is leading on Google. Texas is looking at um, a case as well as New Mexico. When you think, though, about a breakup, what, that, what does that look like to you? Because oftentimes these social networks rely in large part on the social network, right? It is the scale that, that, that makes a social network uh, a success. Is this more about breaking up the Instagrams from the Facebook piece, from the WhatsApp piece, or something else? It, that is part of our relief. But part of our relief, our basic relief is, again, is stopping this anti-competitive um, behavior. But breaking it up is um, one of uh, the injunctive terms that we are looking at. Uh, so you've gone after big tech. Um, one of the things that I was curious about, because I remember this uh, comment very well, um, I was thinking about Wall Street. And, and you very famously said that it was critically important, important that you were not known as the sheriff on Wall Street, and I wanted to ask you why. Because that belonged to my former boss, Elliot Spitzer, and I know it caused a big brouhaha, but the reality is, is that we're, we're arguing over a nomenclature, and you know that was his title. I wanted my own title, um, and so I just want to be known by someone who stood up to big interest, big-pocketed corporations, and was not afraid of a, of a fight, whether it be on Wall Street, whether it be in Washington, D.C., um, um, whether it be, uh, um, for instance, a case that we brought to today um, against LibraNexus that was exploiting immigrants um, or um, consumers, these, cons these bottom feeders, as I call them, that are preying upon vulnerable populations like seniors who are basically marketing these false cures for COVID. Um, we just need to stand up and the Attorney General uh, of the state of New York has a lot of power and we want to flex that power and we want to stand up and serve as the people's lawyer and that's what I'm doing each and every day and I'm thankful and I'm honored to do that. How do you think about uh, another piece of technology these days that, that's both crosses the technolo technological world and the finance world and, and that is cryptocurrency. We're talking to the Treasury Secretary this morning uh, about Bitcoin and one of the things that that she's worried about is it being used for illicit purposes. I know that you brought a, you brought a cryptocurrency case, but I'm I'm curious how you're thinking about cryptocurrency uh, more broadly. Or how concerned are you that it's being used for fraud? And and do you think that long term it's it's something that's here to stay? And this is part of a, a growing pains of of, of an, an innovative new tool, uh, or do you think that this is something that uh, we're going to not be talking about in the future? So it's interesting, you know. Um... It's a balancing act between innovation and uh, protecting investors against fraud. Um, and I don't want to stifle innovation, but at the same time, I recognize that Bitcoins, most, most Bitcoins um, are not backed by anything. Most Bitcoins, unfortunately, have been engaged in some unlawful behavior. Um, uh, and the um, shares of the Bitcoin and other types of stock um, have, you know, been in, inflated and then it, 
you know, a few minutes later, unfortunately, there's been swings in the market. Um, and so I think it's important, um, and I've advised my staff to put out an advisory, uh, one to institutional players um, and to individuals on the marketplace about um, the risk, inherent risks associated with cryptocurrency. And so what do you think the outcome of that will be? Meaning if we're having this conversation I wish I had a crystal ball, but I don't have a crystal ball. All I know is that buyers beware. Okay. Um, I wonder to talk about lessons you've learned in this role over the years. Uh, you've won a lot of cases, but you've also lost a couple along the way, uh, including one uh, against Exxon. I know it was not a case that uh, you init initiated yourself, but I was curious how, what the big lesson of that case, for example, was in terms of how you bring other cases or how, how you mount a case? Well, you know, cryptocurrency, I mean, um, uh, Exxon, as you indicated, was initiated by my predecessor, um, Eric Schneiderman. And we took on that case. And unfortunately, we were not successful at that case. But that is an example, uh, again, of testing the law um, and uh, focusing on an area um, investor protection. Um, as opposed to what I would have liked to have seen in that litigation was more consumer fraud. As you know, other attorneys general, including my friend Maura Healy from Mass, is focusing and it has initiated a case against Exxon um, in a consumer space. And that was uh, unfortunately not our focus. But nonetheless, I'm proud of the litigation. I'm proud of the work that the team engaged in. I'm proud um, that they tested the waters and I'm proud that they uh, initiated a novel, um, a novel, an, a advanced a novel theory, and it, and attempted to advance the law. But I know at the at the end of the day, um, someone will be ultimately will be successful as it relates um, to Exxon. Um, what do you tell people uh, who think that these roles um, are are political roles, that these aren't legal roles because they are an elected position and because. Folks in your role have often gone on to higher roles. So, you know, it's funny that you say that because when I was the public advocate, you know, I tested the law a lot. Um, I wanted to test the standing of the Office of Public Advocate. I was successful in some cases and in others I was not. Now as the Attorney General of the State of New York, um, rarely is the issue of my jurisdiction tested. Um, I've been a litigator for some time former public defense attorney, a former assistant attorney general, and I love the law. The law is both the sword and shield, and the law can be used to advance the interest of the general public and protect those who are marginalized and vulnerable. And so I don't really view this as a political job. I view, view this through the lens of justice and correcting wrongs and standing up um, for those without a champion um, and using my voice and my platform uh, to seek justice for them. I view myself as the people's lawyer. And I do know that there are others who say that attorney general stands for aspiring governor. That is, at this point in time, um, my focus, again, is representing the interests of the citizens of the great state of New York. And um, I would argue that um, my team has a, should have a gold star attached um, to its label because um, uh, we have uh, um, been putting our heads down, not focusing on the politics, but focusing on the law and standing up for the interest of New Yorkers. And, and it's, it's an honor and a privilege to be associated with all of the wonderful professionals in our office. I have two more questions, and I know we're, 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 we're going to run out of time soon. Uh, but you brought a case against the NYPD uh, yeah. in terms of how uh, they acted during the protests. Uh, 
this summer. And again, I wanted to ask you about the balance, um, the balance in terms of how you think about uh, the net effect on society. And, and, and I know you're, you, you, you talk about representing the people. And the reason I ask this is because there seems to be uh, two things that hopefully are not in conflict, but are oftentimes framed that way, which is how do you reform the police on one side and how do you have uh, effectively more law and order or more safety on the other? And how do you think about those two ideas? Because if you look at the Constitution, and if you look at the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment, and if you look at um, um, my responsibilities, and that is to defend the Constitution, and when you witness as a result of videos and as a result of talking to individuals, when you witness their rights being violated, um, then you've got to do something about it. And so uh, it's unfortunate that NYPD, when it comes to large-scale protest, has been violating uh, the rights of individuals in a systematic um, fashion. And it dates back to um, the Republican convention. It, it dates back to um, the, uh, the controversy on Wall Street. Um, um, and it dates back most recently into this racial reckoning that we find ourselves in, um, where individuals basically protested in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and they were petitioning their government for reform and for change. And during that period, um, their rights were violated. And it was evidenced by a hearing um, that I conducted, a three-day hearing where I heard from over 100 individuals who participated in their protest. It was witnessed by um, uh, the individuals who also submitted testimony. Um, and it was witnessed by the, uh, the cameras, the videos, the pictures, all of that evidence that we analyze. And it was um, also analyzed in, um, when in comparison to the tes testimony of the police commissioner and his testimony stood in stark contrast to that of the protesters. Um, and as a result of that, it was important that we engage in, we attempt to engage in some systematic reform of NYPD as it relates to um, uh, these large scale protests. And let me also say um, that even the police commissioner, as well as um, uh, Deputy Inspector Moynihan, indicated that the vast majority of individuals who engaged in protests were peaceful, were peaceful. Um, and it's those individuals um, that I am standing up for. And I'm standing up, more importantly, for the Constitution. And I will defend their right to protest. I will defend their First Amendment right. And I will defend their 14th Amendment right. Kettling was wrong when you contain individuals and you do not allow them to exit. Using batons, using cars, arresting essential workers, arresting legal observers, all of that and more was wrong. And so it's important that we engage in reforms. And our report and our complaint was confirmed by a report that was conducted by the Department of Investigation and the city's own Corporation Council. They agree with us. They agree with our findings. The, the disagreement is over whether or not we sh NYPD should agree to a monitor. And that's what we are, um, that's part of our um, injunctive relief that we are seeking. And that is the appointment of a monitor to ensure that the practices and procedures, that there are practices and procedures in place in response to large scale um, uh, protests and uh, that the rights of individuals are respected and protected. Fair enough. Uh, final question for you. Yes. Um, you did an interview uh, in Cosmo magazine um, 
I'm not normally a Cosmo reader, but uh, I've become one. And you said something that fascinated me. You said, I have this armor that I wear each and every day, and it cannot be pierced. What did you mean by that? Well, I'm a woman of faith. And um, my faith teaches me um, about uh, being protected. And so what it meant metaphorically is um, I have an armor. Um, I carry it each and every day. I am uh, blessed to be protected. Um, and that any arrows that come my way, um, I can repel them um, because um, I stand up for Lady Justice. Patricia James, thank you for the conversation. Really appreciate it. It's terrific. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us. Uh, we uh, will be back in just a little bit uh, with the CEO of Delta Airlines at Bastion. Steve Baum will be coming up a little bit later, and then we've got a huge day ahead as well tomorrow. See you in just a moment. We were listening to the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James. Thank you for listening. Start maybe speaking to somebody about getting a custom-made jumpsuit because um, it does not look good for him. That's my prediction. Not mincing words, that was Donald Trump's former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, on this network just a few days ago, predicting that Trump should be preparing for the worst after the United States Supreme Court declined to block a New York grand jury from getting the former president's tax returns. Today, we know that those tax returns are in the hands of Manhattan DA Cy Vance after the subpoena was enforced on Monday. While the Supreme Court's ruling doesn't mean the documents will become public anytime soon or ever, it does signify a broad investigation of hush money payments and other financial issues over the course of the last eight years that very well could spell trouble for Donald Trump. As our friend Tim O'Brien writes in Bloomberg, a dam that Trump has spent decades fortifying around his finances and tax returns has been broken. And Vance's investigation appears to be broad enough to pose a serious criminal threat to the former president, three eldest children in the Trump Organization. Joining our conversation is the author of that piece, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, Tim O'Brien, and Matt Miller is here. Tim, there's been so much uh, speculation and then ultimately reporting around what Robert Mueller's investigation, which was looking at ties to Russia, did and didn't get. It's now known that they did not have all of Donald Trump's financial documents. Our friend Andrew Weissman wrote about that in his book, or his tax returns. But, but you know a little bit about his finances. I mean, what is the, the dam breaking? What, what does Cy Vance have in its entirety that no one has ever seen before? Well, the, the first thing to remember is that it's not just the tax returns. It's the, it's the work product with his accountants. And this is a criminal case. One of the standards in a criminal case is Cy Vance needs to show intent. <clears throat> He's going to need to show that Donald Trump had awareness of what was going on or his children or, or uh, executives in the Trump organization and that they were batting issues like this back and forth with their accountants. So presumably they also are, have gotten communiques and notes on, on all the decisions they made about how to value their properties when they were taking them to banks and saying one thing and then how to value them when they were putting them in front of tax authorities and saying something completely different. 
Uh, all of these sort of decisions and communications help establish culpability and intent. So what's really important here is that he, of course, he has the tax returns, but he has something much more than the tax returns. Uh, the period of time he has is important because it predates Trump's ascent into the White House and I think helps build uh, the narrative around uh, the money trail and Trump's motivations for his um, destructive and obscene dance with people like Vladimir Putin. Um, it's a shame they couldn't go back further. I think this is one of the um, tragic misses of Robert Mueller's investigation. He could have gone back further, I think, than Cy Vance is able to into Trump's finances. But nonetheless, it's a substantial period of time. It's eight years. Um, it also pulls his three eldest children into the radar on this investigation. Uh, Eric Trump has been deposed. Ivanka Trump's name has come up in disclosures already in the tax returns about receiving what appear to be very sketchy and lucrative consulting fees from uh, her father's company, a company she already received a salary from. Um, and then it also you know, targets people inside the Trump organization who might flip on Trump if they're exposed to criminal liabilities. All of that's important. And then I think the, you know, the brass ring in all of this is that if Trump has a criminal conviction, he's not run for president again, and that's looming over this entire thing as well. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow today's top stories and breaking news and catch up on your favorite MSNBC shows all in one place. Download the NBC News app. That was Rachel Maddow. <coughs> Hope everyone is doing well. Oh, John Brennan, one of my favorites on MSNBC News. It says, testimony today showed extremists have plans have plans to carry out heinous acts of violence John Brennan was uh, as the head of our CIA. And I wonder what you make of this warning and testimony, almost buried, really, with all this sort of flood of headlines today, that the joint address to Congress, which is yet to be scheduled, remains a target for the extremists. Well, Nicole, I think it's just the most recent evidence that there are groups of deeply disturbed individuals who live in a world of conspiracy theories who use violence in order to seek the aims that they're after, to include violence being perpetrated against the capital of this country. And so what we saw on January 6th, obviously, was the manifestation of this built-up anger that these individuals have, fed by a number of politicians, including by Donald Trump, unfortunately, that just led to the ransacking of the capital on the 6th of January. But I think what we heard today was continued evidence that these individuals had plans to carry out these heinous acts of violence to kill individuals, again, to try to undermine the democratic institutions of our government 
and to murder as many of our government officials as they can. Deeply disturbing, and this is something that really needs to be a wake-up call to those law enforcement and security organizations that have that responsibility to protect the Capitol, but also to our government leaders, especially members of Congress, who continue to give air to these conspiracy theories, unfortunately. I wonder if you could just speak to what extremists hear when politicians in positions of authority and power are echoing those conspiracy theories in their capacity as United States senators. Well, quite frankly, Nicole, I'm disgusted by what I've heard coming out of the mouths of senators, Ron Johnson, the Josh Hawley's and Ted Cruz's and others, who continuing to give credence to some of these conspiracy theories. This is just uh, a, a dereliction of responsibility. I don't care which political party they're from. They have a responsibility to the people, not just of their state and their constituents, but also to this country to try to do everything possible to diffuse these sentiments that are leading to this violent expression of anger and violence against uh, our capital. And so therefore, I, again, I just shake my head. I cannot believe that when I hear these things coming out of their mouths, they continue to fuel these sentiments and they know better. They know that they're being dishonest and they're just antagonizing individuals who are looking for reasons to carry out their acts of violence. our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow today's top stories and breaking news and catch up on your favorite MSNBC shows all in one place. Download the NBC News app today. There's more to weight management than meets the eye. People may see results when they look at <coughs> We were listening to MS. We were listening to MS. NBC News for February 25th, Bitcoin, the best money we've 2021. That was uh, Nicole with um, former CIA director John Brennan. He will bring it to you just the way it is. He will not try to sugarcoat anything. I appreciate him. Nicole Wallace, that's her name. And her show is called Deadline L.A. Stormed the Capitol on January 6th, today underscoring the ongoing threat to the U.S. government. Chief Yogananda Pittman telling lawmakers at a hearing today that militias have said they want to, quote, blow up the Capitol and kill as many members as possible during President Biden's first official address to Congress, which has not yet been scheduled. Joining our conversation, Congressman John Patrick Maloney of New York. Um, Congressman, we were watching and it, 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 it caught us as um, newly public information about the ongoing threat there. And, and I wonder if behind the scenes there's something we're not seeing from the Republicans. Are they shaken from their partisan trance by testimony like that? Well, no, in a word, they're not, um, because they are just wrapped around the axle of some very dangerous, dangerous conspiracy theories and elements in their own party that continue to spread the big lie that the election was stolen. And it had consequences, the violent attack on the Capitol, the murder of a police officer, uh, the deaths of other people. Um, unfortunately, I can't report to you that they've uh, that they've rediscovered reality. No. 
<laughs> I thought I'd try. Um, it's so stunning, though, and, and I, I think we, we all, and I, I'm guilty of this probably more than most, Whoa. making parallels to an attack like 9-11, waking everyone up to a threat that exceeded perhaps our imagination and, and revealed mistakes and grave errors on the part of the government, but also made us think differently about how we protect our country. That doesn't seem to have happened at all, yet the images of everyone hiding to protect themselves included all the Democrats and Republicans that I could see. Why, why is the reaction so politicized? Well, you know, I, I guess you, you'll have to ask them, but I, I would say something a little bipartisan, which is that when I go home to the Hudson Valley and I talk to, you know, the Orange County County Executive, who's a Republican, he says, you know, wow, those people are crazy. Um, he supports <laughs> he supports state and local aid. And he's talking about the violent extremists who attacked the Capitol, to be fair to him. But he understands right and wrong. Uh, the Republican County Executive in Dutchess County, New York, understands right and wrong. They understand that these QAnon conspiracy theories are crazy. And 75% of Americans, including a lot of Republicans, support the pandemic relief bill. So what you're really seeing is a Republican caucus that is in the throes of some very dangerous elements. And that's why 139 of them voted to set aside the election. 199 voted to keep Marjorie Taylor Greene on her committees. And just today, just a couple of them voted for equality for LGBT Americans. So you've got a Republican caucus that is badly out of touch with where the country is. No, you're right. I mean, and, and I think that's why this story of throwing down um, with the most extreme elements in American political life um, is, frankly, out of step. But you, you talked about the other breaking news today. The House voted 224 to 206. There were three Republicans who joined all Democrats in supporting the Equality Act. Um, this, too, though, represents the, the mainstream of American thought. And, and this seems just like another perfect example of Republicans being out of step. You know, can I just tell you, so I've been with my husband for 28 years, 22 of those uh, before we were married. We've raised three children during that nearly three decades. Um, I was thinking about my family when I spoke on the floor today, when I presided for the second time over the passage of the Equality Act. Two years ago when we did this, eight Republicans supported it. Today it was three. They're going the wrong way. And that's just another indication that while America, by broad supermajorities, thinks it's wrong to fire LGBT people just because of who we are or who we love, it's not even controversial among most people in America right now. Here in Washington, in that Republican caucus, um, only three, only three out of more than 200 would support equality for LGBT Americans. So I hope people understand this is a caucus that is dangerously out of step with where the American people are on this, the pandemic, and other things. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow today's top stories and breaking news and catch up on your favorite MSNBC shows all in one place. Download the NBC News app today. Okay. Warren Buffett just sold eight hundred million dollars. We're listening again to Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. Her show is Deadline White House, and she was interviewing representative from New York, Sean Patrick Maloney. Let's catch up on what else is in the news today. There's so many things. Um, not all of it is worth our time.
Capitol Hill police officer breaks his silence after attempted siege. That was three days ago. Good morning, America. Capitol Hill police officers who fought off the mob on January 6th. His story was front and center at the impeachment trial. We heard how he was called the N-word more than a dozen times. And he told his story for the first time publicly to our chief justice correspondent, Pierre Thomas. Good morning, Pierre. George, good morning. Today, for the first time, we see and hear from a Capitol Police officer who was a witness to that day of infamy. He's speaking only for himself and not for his department, but he has quite a story to tell. He was tested physically and emotionally as he battled that mob in a fight for democracy where racism reared its ugly head. <laughs> there were so many calls on the radio priority help help somebody's trapped we need help shots fired when capitol police officer harry dunn went to work on the morning of january 6th it felt like a normal day what's the first moment that you began to get a sense that something is off kilter here we were told to uh get helmets riot helmets uh that was new but no sense that all hell could break loose correct correct then the 13-year veteran seen here watches the crowd of thousands closed in on the east side of the Capitol. You just see a sea of people, Trump flags, Confederate flags, then blue line flags, don't tread on me flags. And then you look down and you see officers fighting with these people, pepper spray, smoke grenades, gas grenades, pepper balls being thrown by everybody, flashbangs. We've fought with these people who were prepared for a fight. They had on gas masks, they had on body armor, they had on two-way radios, they had on tactical gear, bulletproof vests. They were ready to go. When you see that level of preparedness, did that surprise you? Did it scare you? I was scared. I was absolutely scared. I'm on this platform. I'm a big guy. I'm six foot seven. I'm this giant person and we had our guns out and i'm thinking all these people out there they're armed too and i'm like i'm gonna get shot they won't take me out i remember at one point i said how is this going to end eventually the mob forced his way inside the capitol building officer dunn confronting a group carrying a blue lives matter flag i said hey, we got dozens of officers down we got dozens of officers down and you got the nerve to be holding a Blue Lives Matter flag. I thought they were going to have a moment where they they came to and they realized, like, yo, what are we doing? But, like, they instantly snapped out of it. And they said, nah, we're doing this for you. We're doing this for you. And as one of the guys kept walking by, the other one pulled out his badge and said, trust me, I understand. We're doing this for you, buddy. And he's got a badge. He shows me his badge. What did you take? A fellow officers in the You gotta be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me. Exhausted, Officer Dunn tried reasoning with a large group of protesters approaching a hallway he was guarding. I literally told them, if they want to get through here, you gotta go through me. And they didn't. They just started talking to me. They were saying how Joe Biden did not win the election and nobody voted for him. 
So I took the bait and I, okay, what about me? I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? This is when Officer Dunn encountered a couple in the crowd who began hurling the most vile racial slurs at him, a black officer. And his girlfriend, she had on a pink MAGA shirt. He said, hey, this voted for Joe Biden, guys. Hey, everybody, this voted for Joe Biden. They said, you So the crowd joined everybody, in with Everybody, everybody joined in with him. You're in the Capitol defending the Capitol. And somehow race seeped into that, too. Everybody wants to say that it was about politics and everything, but it was a large number of people in that crowd mm. that were racist. Did the people who were there tell you why they were there? We're stopping the steal. According to them, they were doing it for us. They were doing us a favor. According to those terrorists. You're very precise. You use, use the word terrorist. Absolutely. Absolutely. It wasn't just a mob or a bunch of thugs, you know. It, they were terrorists. They tried to disrupt this country's democracy. That was their goal. And you know what? Y'all failed. But five people lost their lives that day, including Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. After the Capitol had been cleared, Officer Dunn had his first chance to reflect on what he had witnessed. It's just a cloud of smoke, water bottles, broken flagpoles, everything in the rotunda just laying there on the floor. The it's rotunda. The rotunda. The pinnacle of the, the democracy. American democracy. And all this stuff is there. And I sat down with a good friend of mine. So I said, is this America? What the hell just happened? And I told him, I called a n- couple dozen times today, protecting this building. Is this America? They beat police officers with Blue Lives Matter flags. They fought us. They had Confederate flags in the U.S. Capitol. They stormed the speaker's office. They went through their sensitive documents. They were trying to assassinate the vice president in the Capitol. What's the gamut of emotion? I've got angry. I got sad. I got hurt. Even just during this interview, I'm getting angry now. But I don't mind talking about it, and that's how I get through it. Dunn has nothing but praise for his fellow officers, including Eugene Goodman, who was seen on camera shielding the unguarded Senate floor and directing Senator Mitt Romney away from that mob of protesters. There were dozens of Eugene Goodmans that day. Dozens. Eugene got caught on camera, and I'm not surprised that he did the right thing, the brave thing, the heroic thing. He deserves everything that he's getting. But there were so many Eugene Goodmans that weren't caught on camera that day, and I'm proud to work with them. Boy, Pierre, that is so powerful. The officer, Officer Dunn, reminds us just how horrifying that day was. How's he doing now? Well, Officer Dunn and his fellow brothers and sisters at the Capitol Police are still healing on so many levels, trying to overcome a day seared in their memories, George. As you can see from the interview, it's going to take some time. Boy, it sure is, Pierre. That is really something. And all of you at home can see more of Pierre's exclusive interview tonight on World News across our ABC platforms, including our primetime series, Soul of a Nation, which premieres next Tuesday at 10 Eastern. 